Welcome to Murder Lab, the podcast where I don't just discuss one serial killer, I discuss several serial killers and something they have in common. This is Queen Victoria, and I have an exciting news. I do have some new merch available. I haven't posted pictures yet, but I will. I now have t-shirts available for sale. So that's t-shirts, refrigerator magnets, car magnets. I still have some Christmas ornaments, and I guess that's it. If you are interested in purchasing any magnets or t-shirts, please let me know. You can go to murderlabmedia.com and email me or go to Facebook at the Murder Lab page and message me there or make a post or some such and I will happily respond and we can figure out a way for you to get some sweet, sweet merch. I'd like to thank Igor my socially distant assistant and immoral support for helping me out with everything, research and cheerleading and inspiration. Don't forget to share, 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 and keep an eye on the Instagram, the Facebook, and the website for updates. As the year goes on, there should be more exciting things planned as we can get out and about more. But in the meantime, we are still in it together, even if we can't be together. And all that Pollyanna bullshit. I figured I'd bring up the fact that they revealed a serial killer that is killing senior citizens. My mom, who is an avid reader of People magazine and has been since probably before I was born, she sent me a text telling me that she found this article about the serial killer. And so she, next time I saw her, she handed me the magazine. So this current source is People magazine. And the gist is that... Former healthcare worker Billy Chimamir, age 47, allegedly killed at least 14 elderly people in Dallas and Collin counties in Texas between 2016 and 2018. And he's apparently one of the most prolific serial killers in Texas history. He would often dress as a healthcare or maintenance worker and enter senior residential communities. He would kill the elderly residents and steal their jewelry and other valuables. He was a Kenyan immigrant with permanent resident status in the U.S., and he has pled not guilty. He has a 2021 trial date. And the interesting thing is that it looked like they had died of natural causes. It looks like he started in as early as 2016. He would go to upscale senior communities with wealthy residents. Most of the victims were either hit on the head or smothered with a pillow, and the murders went undetective because you'd assume they died of natural causes because they're elderly in a nursing home. But... They finally started to connect the dots in March 2018 when a 91-year-old woman survived an attack. She said that a man snuck in a room, put a pillow over her face until she lost consciousness. A friend found her. She was revived. The woman was able to give a detailed description of her attacker who said she had he had stolen some jewelry. The surveillance video placed Chimamir at the scene in his vehicle. They also saw him throw an empty jewelry box in the dumpster behind his apartment, and when they looked in it, they found the name of 81-year-old Plano resident Lutai Harris. They went to Harris's home and found her dead with a lipstick-smudged pillow next to her. They also found a set of her house keys in his car. While they were waiting for the trial and to get all of the drama and trauma over with four of the daughters of their of his alleged victims have banded together and started a group called secure our seniors safely a nonprofit lobbying and activist group dedicated to enacting laws to protect vulnerable seniors i will be adding billy to my list of serial killers and as more information comes out i'll keep an eye on it thing is as you know 
it takes a while to find out information about any kind of crime that happens, basically something that may have spanned years. So so we may not know very much until years from now. And, you know, after the trial and everything, I imagine we'll have some more information. So we may not be able to really dig into it until a couple years from now, but I will keep them on my list and I will keep you updated. Now, what is today's episode about? It is about Sonny Bean and his Bean family. Sonny Bean. This is the, ooh, penultimate episode of the series in Families That Murder Together. We have one more in the series, which will be the Reigns Brothers and the Chicago Rippers. So that will be the last in the series. It's probably not the last family that actually murdered together, but that's the last I'm going to cover for a while. We'll move on to other things. You may know of Sonny Bean from the Wes Craven movie, The Hills Have Eyes, because that movie is based on the legend of his family. All that I knew about Sonny Bean was that apparently it was a Scottish family that lived in a cave and ate people and stole their shit. So cannibalism, robbery, that kind of thing. That was the gist of what I knew. So I threw them in there because Bean is mentioned, the Bean family is mentioned frequently in serial killer books. But my main reference for this episode is Sonny Bean dissecting the legend of the Scottish cannibal by Blaine L. Pardo. Whenever I start researching, I normally look and see how many different books are about them, and I try to I try to get several of the books and read a couple of them. In this case, there's so much information in the one book that I chose. I am just going to stick with this book for now, and I did cross-reference with some of my other encyclopedias and stuff like that. I think there will be plenty to cover just based on this book. Kind of like I did with the Benders is I may read some more stuff afterwards. And then if I come across anything that is different or enlightening or interesting, I will let you know. And incidentally, I am working on reading another Bender book. So I've read two since the last episode. I have a third one I'm reading, possibly a fourth. So in the next episode or so, I'll give you a little update on what the other books are like when it comes to the Benders. But so far, I haven't really seen too much new information. It's just interesting the way that they have handled the information. At any rate, Sonny Bean. As I said, I always took it that Sonny Bean had a real family and was a real thing and yada yada. But the minute I started reading Sonny Bean dissecting the legend of the Scottish cannibal, I quickly realized that may not be a thing. In the introduction, this is the author saying this. The journey took years of research, as I attempted not to prove the legend true or not, but to search for some element of reality. That says a lot in that one sentence. Is It's not like, all right, I don't know if it's true or not. I don't know if I'll be able to prove that it's true or not. I just want to find if there's anything in it that could be anywhere near real. That's how unsure he is that this is even a thing at all. In his research, he found that people thought it was fiction, an English jab at Scottish people. Others thought it was true, and they would point at certain locations and bits of evidence, and then there are others that were unsure. And I quote, Most folklore begins as a local story, which gains credence before a national and then a world audience. The legend of the mass-murdering beans didn't start in Scotland, but in England, and was only half-heartedly adopted by the locals of Galloway, and even then with tongue-in-cheek. So the interesting thing is... This is about a Scottish family that didn't originate in Scotland. It originated in England. So I'm intrigued. He claims that it lacks testimonies, diaries, journals, or other tangible evidence. If there's no quote-unquote proof, how the hell do we know about it now? 
And how, why has it become so pervasive? Up to the point where even now, parents will say, eat your veggies or Sonny Bean will get you. So we're going to jump back in time, folks, with Mr. Pardo. And the way that he handles it is he goes through and he, he talks about how, of course, first it was, it was um, word of mouth. So then he goes through and he was trying to find when's the first printed version of this story. So the first printed book version might be by Captain Charles Johnson. And the book has a really stupid long name that I didn't even bother to write down. It was in London in 1724. It was reprinted several times, including in Glasgow in 1734. I am actually going to read to you this version by Captain Charles Johnson. And that way you'll get the gist because there's going to be different versions. And I won't read every single version, but I think it's important for you to hear the original version. The following account, though as well attested as any historical fact can be, is almost incredible for the monstrous unparalleled barbarities that it relates. There being nothing that we have ever heard of with the same degree of certainty that may be compared with it or that shows how far a brutal temper untamed by education and knowledge of the world may carry a man into such glaring and horrible colors. Sonny Bean was born in the county of East Lothian, about eight or nine miles eastward of the city of Edinburgh, sometime in the reign of Queen Elizabeth, whilst King James I governed only in Scotland. His parents worked at hedging and ditching for their livelihood and brought up their son in the same occupation. He got his daily bread in his youth by these means, but being very much prone to idleness and not caring for being confined to any honest employment, he left his father and mother and ran away into the desert part of the country, taking with him a woman as viciously inclined as himself. These two took up their habitation in a rock by the seaside on the shore of the county of Galway, where they lived upwards of 25 years without going into any city, town, or village. And this time, they had a great number of children and grandchildren whom they brought up after their own manner without any notions of humanity or civil society. They never kept any company but among themselves and supported themselves wholly by robbing, being moreover so very cruel, that they never robbed anyone with whom they did not murder. By this bloody method, and their living so retiredly from the world, they continued such a long time undiscovered there being nobody able to guess how the people were lost that went by the place where they lived. As soon as they had robbed and murdered any man, woman, or child, they used to carry off the carcass to the den, where, cutting it into quarters, they would pickle the mangled limbs and afterwards eat it, this being their only sustenance. And, notwithstanding, they were at last so numerous they commonly had superfluity of this their abominable food, to that in the night time they frequently threw legs and arms of the unhappy wretches they had murdered into the sea at a great distance from their bloody habitation. The limbs were often cast up by the tide in several parts of the country to the astonishment and terror of all the beholders and others who heard of it. Persons who have gone about their lawful occasions fell so often into their hands that it caused a general outcry in the country round about, no man knowing what was become of his friend or relation if they were once seen by these merciless cannibals. All of the people in the adjacent parts were at last alarmed at such a common loss of their neighbors and acquaintances, for there was no traveling in safety near the den of these wretches. This occasioned their sending frequent spies into these parts, many of whom never returned again, and those who did, after died. The strictest search and inquiry could not find out how these melancholy matters happened. 
several honest travelers were taken upon suspicion and wrongfully hanged upon bare circumstances. Several innocent innkeepers were executed for no other reason than that persons who had been thus loft were known to have lain at their houses, which occasioned a suspicion of their being murdered by them, and their bodies privately buried in obscure places to prevent discovery. Thus an ill-placed justice was executed with the greatest severity imaginable, in order to prevent these frequent atrocious deeds, so that not a few innkeepers who lived on the western road of Scotland left off their business for fear of being made examples and followed other employments. This, on the other hand, occasioned many great inconveniences to travelers, who were now in great distress for accommodation for themselves and their horses when they were disposed to bait or put up for lodging at night. In a word, the whole country was almost depopulated. Still, the king's subjects were missing as much as before, so that it was the admiration of the whole kingdom how such villainies could be carried on, and not the villains to be found out. A great many had been executed, and not one of them all made any confession to the gallows, but stood it to the last that they were perfectly innocent of the crimes for which they suffered. When the magistrates found that all was in vain, they left off these rigorous proceedings, and trusted wholly to Providence for bringing to light the authors of these unparalleled barbarities, when it should seem proper to the divine wisdom. Sani's family was at last grown very large, and every branch of it, as soon as able, assisted in perpetrating their wicked deeds, which they still followed with impunity. Sometimes they would attack four, five, or six footmen together, but never more than two if they were on horseback. They were, moreover, so careful that not one whom they fell upon should escape, that an ambuscade was placed on every side to secure them, let them fly which way they would, provided it should never so happen that one or more got away from the first assailants. How was it possible they should be detected when no one that saw them ever saw anybody else afterwards? The place where they inhabited was quite solitary and lonesome, and when the tide came up, the water went for near 200 yards into their subterraneous habitation, which reached almost a mile underground, so that when some who had been sent armed to search all the by places about have passed by the mouth of their cave, they have never taken notice of it, not supposing that anything human would reside in such a place of perpetual horror and darkness. The number of the people these savages destroyed was never exactly known, but it was generally computed that in the 25 years they continued their butcheries, they had washed their hands in the blood of a, of a thousand at least men, women, and children. The manner how they were last discovered was as follows. A man and his wife behind him on the same horse, coming one evening home from a fair and falling into the ambuscade of these merciless wretches, they tell upon them in the most furious manner. The man, to save himself as well as he could, fought very bravely against them with sword and pistol, riding some of them down by main force of his horse. In the conflict, the poor woman fell from behind him and was instantly murdered before her husband's face, for the female cannibals cut her throat and fell to sucking her blood with as great a gust as if it had been wine. This done, they ripped up her belly and pulled out all her entrails. Such a dreadful spectacle made the man make the more obstinate resistance, and he expected the same fate if he fell into their hands. It pleased Providence, while he was engaged, that twenty or thirty from the same fair came together in a body, upon which Sonny Bean and his bloodthirsty clan withdrew and made the best of their way through a thick wood to their den. This man, who was the first who had ever fell in the way and came out alive, told the whole company what had happened and showed them the horrid spectacle of his wife, whom the murderers had dragged to some distance but had not had time to carry her entirely off. They were all struck with stupefaction and amazement at what he related, took him with them to Glasgow, and told the affair to the provost of that city, who immediately sent to the king concerning it. 
And about three or four days after, his majesty himself in person, with a body of about 400 men, set out for the place where this dismal tragedy was acted in order to search all the rocks and thickets that, if possible, they may apprehend this hellish cure, which had been so long pernicious to all the western parts of the kingdom. The man who had been attacked was the guide, and care was taken to have a large number of bloodhounds with them that no human means might be wanting towards their putting an entire end to these cruelties. No sign of any habitation was to be found for a long time, and even when they came to the wretch's cave, they took no notice of it, but were going to pursue their search along the seashore, the tide being then out. But some of the bloodhounds luckily entered this Chimerian den and instantly set up a most hideous barking, yowling, howling and yelping, so that the king, with his attendants, came back and looked into it. They could not yet tell how to conceive that anything human could be concealed in a place where they saw nothing but darkness. Nevertheless, as the bloodhounds increased their noise, they went farther in and refused to come back again, they began to imagine there was some reason more than ordinary. Torches were now immediately sent for, and a great many men ventured in through the most intricate turnings and windings, till at last they arrived at the private recess from all the world, which was the habitation of these monsters. Now the whole body, or as many of them as could, went in, and were all so shocked at what they beheld that they were almost ready to sink into the earth. Legs, arms, thighs, hands, and feet of men, women, and children were hung up in rows like dried beef. A great many limbs lay in pickle, and a great mass of money, both gold and silver, with watches, rings, swords, pistols, and a large quantity of clothes, both linen and woolen, and an infinite number of other things, which they had taken from those whom they had murdered, were thrown together in heaps or hung up against the sides of the den. Sani's family at this time, besides him, consisted of his wife, eight sons, six daughters, eighteen grandsons, and fourteen granddaughters, all who were begotten in incest. These were all seized and pinioned by his majesty's order in the first place, and they took what human flesh they could find and buried it in the sands, afterwards loading themselves with the spoils which they found. They returned to Edinburgh with their prisoners, all the country as they passed along, flocking to feed this cursed tribe. When they were come to the journey's end, the wretches were all committed to the tall booth from whence they were die next day conducted under a strong guard to Leith, where they were all executed without any process, it being thought needless to try creatures who were even professed enemies to mankind. The men had first their privy members cut off and thrown into the fire before their faces. Then their hands and legs were severed from their bodies, by which amputations they bled to death in some hours. The wife daughters and grandchildren, having been made spectators of this just punishment inflicted on the men, were afterwards burnt to death in three several fires. They all in general died without the least signs of repentance, but continued cursing and venting the most dreadful imprecations at the very last gasp of life. That was a little long, but it was, uh, it was something. So the highlights, as you can see, it does hit some of those notes that I had mentioned earlier. You've got the family in the cave, robbing people and eating them. Those are the details of the very first one. So that was a lot of information. So here are the highlights. There's an introduction. The following account, though as well attested as any historical fact can be, is almost incredible. For the monstrous and unparalleled barbarities that it relates, there being nothing that we ever heard of with the same degree of certainty that may be compared with it, or that shows how far brutal a temper untamed by education and knowledge of the world may carry a man into such glaring and horrible colors. So basically they're like, this shit's crazy. Like, this is almost unbelievable. So you're not going to believe this shit, is basically what the introduction is. 
Then it says it's in East Lothian near Edinburgh during the reign of Queen Elizabeth when King James I governed only Scotland. The parents were hedging into hedging and ditching. They brought him up in it. He was idle and ran away with a woman just like himself. They stayed in, a, in the rock by the seaside on the shore of the county of Galway. For 25 years, they didn't go into any other city, town, or village. They had kids and grandkids, robbed and murdered, quartered the carcasses, pickled limbs, and ate them. They had extra food, so they would throw legs and arms into the sea, and the tide would bring them up for people to find. Travelers and innkeepers were suspected and executed. They would attack four to six people, but if those people were on horseback, they wouldn't do more than two. They'd make sure that no one would escape. They'd surround them and make sure no one left. The tide hid their hiding place. In 25 years, at least 1,000 men, women, and children were killed. A man and wife leaving from a fair were attacked. They took the wife. The female cannibals cut her throat, sucked her blood, and pulled out her entrails. People from the fair came upon them, and he escaped. The king came with 400 men and bloodhounds. The bloodhounds found the cave. Legs, arms, thighs, hands, and feet of men, women, and children were hung up in the cave. They pickled some limbs. There was money in gold and silver. Watches, rings, swords, pistols, and clothes. He had a wife, eight sons, six daughters, 18 grandsons, 14 granddaughters from incest. Taken to Tallbooth near Edinburgh. No trial. The men had privy members cut off and thrown in a fire. Their hands and legs were severed, bled to death. The women and kids were burned on three stakes and there was no repentance. Now, I'm sure you probably know what privy members are, but just uh, to reiterate, if you are Bob's Burgers fan, you can think of it as the man's tinkle dinker. Or, in the words of Awesome Powers, there's the meat and two veg, twig and berries, wedding tackle. Or, if you're a Monty Python fan, there is a whole song of different names. Isn't it awfully nice to have a penis? Isn't it frightfully good to have a dong? It's swell to own a stiffy. It's divine to own a dick. From the tiniest little tadger to the world's biggest prick. So three chairs for your William or John Thomas. Hooray for your one-eyed trails a snake. Your piece of pork, your wife, best friends, your Percy or your cock. You can wrap it up in ribbons. You can slip it in your sock. But don't take it out in public or they will stick you in the dock and you won't come back. Yes, that is the penis song from shoot is that the meaning of life i believe it's from and uh i did not learn that for this episode that's just some of the wonderful information that sticks in my brain so i might not remember how old i am sometimes but i do know the lyrics to the penis song by monty python so basically they cut off the men's penises threw them in the fire and then cut off their hands and legs and let them bleed to death and then the women and the children they burned on stakes the next printed version was in a chapbook and if you're not familiar with what a chapbook is, it is basically a pamphlet. This is the Aldermary Churchyard Edition, which was around 1779. The version is basically the same. There's only a few things different. It says Olgay, O-A-L-G-A-Y, instead of Galway. There's no mention of throwing limbs into the sea. There's no mention of their attack tactics, where they would surround people and not let them go. And it specifies there are 20 to 30 people from the fair. It also says that instead of 18 grandsons, he had eight grandsons. So there's a few little details that changed, but not a lot. I mean, of all the, the list of details that I mentioned to you, only like five of those things were different. So that's interesting. The next one is the J. Farabee chapbook, which came out between 1815 and 1825. So in this version... It doesn't mention where the cave was, whereas before it said that 
It was in the seaside on the shore of the county of Galway. It does not mention the attack tactics. It doesn't mention the dogs found the cave. And it doesn't specify the number of granddaughters. It just says 18 grandsons and granddaughters. So you would assume that means 18 total, whereas in the previous versions, they specified 18 grandsons and 14 granddaughters. So again, we just have a few differences. This one also between 1815 and 1825 was the F. Jolly and Sons edition. This one says they had thousands of victims instead of a thousand. There were 30 to 40 fair people that showed up instead of 20 to 30 that happened upon the couple that were being attacked. There is no mention of the dogs finding the cave. There is no mention of incest and no mention of the men having their private parts cut off. So it's interesting that they mention the woman having her entrails pulled out, but they don't mention incest or the private parts. Uh, They do also mention that the men did have their arms and legs cut off. So the thought is maybe they didn't mention incest in the private parts because those things were super icky and might be considered not very tasteful to mention. Even if it did happen, they wouldn't want to mention that because they wanted to try to be classy. 1807 to 1810, there was a the S.N.T. Martin chapbook, which was most similar to the Aldermary Church chapbook, but they spell Gall- Galloway Olgay, like in the Aldermary version. Around 1730, there was a place called Newgate Prison in London. They came out with, uh, with these printed stories that were mostly written by prison chaplains with access to criminals, and they wanted to strike a moral chord. It was not published by one party, but was more like a genre than a series of stories. The Bean story appears as being historically true. In 1825 version of the Terrific Register, there was a version where they say it's James the Sixth and not James the First. They don't mention that they didn't leave the cave. So in this version, it's kind of open-ended like they could have been wandering and actually going out of their cave and going into places instead of being hermits. It doesn't say either way. There's no mention the tide to the opening. It does not specify a number of victims. It only mentions the woman's entrails and not that her throat was cut and her blood were sucked. There were 20 to 30 fair people and there's no swords mentioned in the booty. So it's interesting the, the details that they did not include in that one. The last one is the John Nicholson version, historical and traditional tales in prose and verse connected with the south of Scotland in 1843. It says James I, but does not mention Queen Elizabeth. It has the intro, probably used the Fairby version, some is word for word the same. They removed some of the gross imagery like sucking blood and removing men's privy parts, but it includes the amputation of hands and legs. It's intriguing to see what details they leave and what details they take out. Uh, depending on their sensibilities, I guess. Now, this was intriguing as well. The author Pardo mentions that there are other chapbooks that have similar stories to The Beans, which also calls everything into question about whether it's true or not. There's a chapbook story where they mention John McLeod. The dreadful history of John McLeod and his crew of thieves, robbers, and murderers who were taken in a cave nearby the seaside in Devonshire where they haunted for 25 years without being found out, as they had different inlets to this cave and robbed about 800 people. How they were taken, condemned, and executed at Plymouth with their behavior when hanged and burnt. A wonderful relation of Joseph Franks and seven other savages, taken in the mountains of Hungary, who killed more than 80 persons and eat the human flesh of those they murdered, 
They mention eight savages taken from the mountain in Hungary. They killed eight people. Eighty people were killed and eaten and, quote, salted in their hold. They were there for 15 years. They were they taught wolves, tigers, and other beasts. People searched and found them, and they, quote, received just reward. Another version has John McLeod, born in Devonshire County near Exeter. Parents were hedgers and ditchers. He ran to the desert with a woman, stayed there 25 years, not going anywhere, robbed, murdered, cut, pickled eight people, travelers and innkeepers hanged, four, five, or six footmen, and no more than two upon horseback. No one escaped. Tide hit the cave. 25 years, they killed 800 men, women, and children. Man and wife from the fair were attacked. The woman had her throat cut. Her blood sucked, and her entrails pulled out. 30 people came. The man escaped. The high sheriff showed up with 400 men. They found the cave, which had money, watches, rings, swords, pistols, and clothes. John's gang of 50 were taken and the human flesh buried. They were taken to Exeter, tried, and condemned. 11 men and 10 women died. The men were strangled, dissected, privy members cut off, and arms and legs. Women and daughters strangled and burned. No repentance. So this information about John McLeod was published around 1800, which was 15 years before the Bean one. The McLeod name is Scottish, but the rest is mostly English, so we don't see any kind of slander there. The McLeod chapbook introduces John Franks and shows cannibalism is prevalent. It actually ends with naming three specific sheriffs that wanted it printed, which added credibility. So at the end of the chapbook, it said that these three sheriffs wanted us to print this information so that way, you know, you, you'll know about it. And when they checked, there was no historical evidence of the sheriffs or of John McLeod. So again, it looks like we have some kind of legend. And and you can see the similarities. There are obviously some differences, like they had uh, him in Devonshire or and Exeter. The really interesting thing was that they actually had him tried in one of those Whereas they make a point in all the others that they were not tried because they didn't see the point. The men were, in one version, the men were strangled and dissected. And the John McLeod, it was not his family. It was his gang of robbers. So there are some very important distinctions. But there's enough similarities that it makes you wonder if it is just a legend attributed to different people. There's also another person, amazingly enough, that has the same story. John Gregg. There's a story about John Gregg where it was his family of robbers and murderers in a chapbook that was printed 1789. Seaside Cave in Cloverley in Devonshire. 25 years they don't go out. They rob, murder, and ate a thousand people. They were found by bloodhounds. There was a wife, eight sons, six daughters, 18 grandsons, 14 granddaughters. So those are the exact same numbers that are in the Captain Dun Johnson version and most of the other versions. So... That's interesting. That's very specific. And the women were killed by being cast alive into three fires. So there, there's every single version has three fires. So that's another thing that's interesting. It's It hits all those same notes. The parents were hedges, hedgers and dishers. He ran to the desert with a woman. In, travelers and innkeepers were executed. Four, five, or six footmen, but no more than two on a horse. No one escaped. The tide hit the cave. In 25 years, a thousand men, women, and children were killed. A man and a wife were coming from the fair. They were attacked. A woman had her throat cut, her blood sucked, and her entrails pulled out. 30 people came, and the man escaped. The king came with 400 men and bloodhounds. Again, we have the 400, which is the same in all the others, about Sonny Bean. The hounds found the cave. Arms, legs, thighs, hands, feet of women 
men and children were hung and pickled. So that's another thing, is every single version men mentions arms, legs, thighs, hands, and feet. It does not miss any of those, and it does not add anything else. Money, watches, rings, swords, pistols, and clothes, those were all the same things as mentioned in the, all of the beanie, sawny ones. And they did not have a trial. The men had their privy cut off and put in a fire. Hands and legs were cut off and they bled to death. Women, the wife, daughters, and grandkids were burnt on three fires and they didn't repent. Ex almost exactly to the beat of the Sawney Bean stories. This one's interesting because there's no ties to Scotland, but it was printed in Glasgow. Maybe it was their twist on the English version of the beans. It could be what they call a cheapjack copy of Sonny Bean, according to historian Peter Christie. So I've gone over the details of the story and all the different printed versions and the fact that there were other people attributed to that same story as the beans. Now, when we go to proof, apparently there were proof as in records, if there are any records of anything. Apparently records exist, but they're riddled with gaps. It's most likely everything was passed by word of mouth. The circumstantial evidence suggests it's rooted in the history of the Galloway region. The legend goes Sonny was born eight miles from Edinburgh, but lived in the Galloway region, which was a buffer zone between England and Scotland contested by both throughout history. So this is where we get into really important stuff. Some people make the claim that the Sonny bean tale is an English jab at the Scottish. And you may wonder why do they fucking care enough? And this is why, is because this specific region was actually fought over by the English and Scottish. That would be where people would think that since this legend, legend originated in England and it's against a Scottish person, the reason would be because they were fighting over a fucking piece of land and they had a lot of shit. And I will get into a lot of shit that they, um, that they were fighting over that would cause angst between the tension between the two. And I quote... Being poised at the southern edge of Scotland made Galloway a traditional site for any English incursions to the north. As one Scottish historian put it, it's definitely Scotland, but 500 years ago, this area was called the Debatable Lands because no one knew if it belonged to England or Scotland. Over the centuries, the Scottish have suggested that the loyalties of the people of Galloway lean toward the English, and there's evidence to support this. At the same time, the English have always viewed Galloway as part of Scotland. In the middle stood a people who were, in fact, doggedly independent. So right away, you see the tension of England, Scotland, and the people in between. Now, we're going to dig into history for a minute to really show you and drive home the trials and tribulations between the English and Scottish in the Galloway region, where this supposedly took place. So there was a Presbyterian movement in Scotland, especially the Galloway region, called the Covenanters. King Charles caused a rebellion because he was Anglican and he didn't like the Presbyterian way of doing things. He was part of the Stuart family, which they felt that the king had the divine right of monarchy. But Pres Presbyterians thought only Jesus could be the divine ruler. So they felt that basically Charles was negating Jesus' authority. And so King Charles was trying to put a kibosh on them, and he wound up being tried and executed. So that didn't work very well. Well, then Charles II had more trouble. People wanted democracy at this point. And then there was turmoil over him wanting to let the French bring Catholicism to Scotland in exchange for their support of England. So again, we see where religion, because if there are Presbyterians 
and Protestant, they would not want Catholicism into their country. And we see someone who's English trying to involve the French and in their hold over Scotland. So when Charles II died, he didn't have a heir. So his brother James II was confirmed, but he was Catholic. So the Presbyterians were pissed again, and there was more upheaval. So then when James VII of Scotland, who is the second of England, it's like a whole thing. So when James VII took over, he appointed Catholics to office. And there were two more rebellions, one in England and one in Scotland. Both were suppressed. His son was raised Catholic, which pissed off people, of course. There was Protestant William the Orange, which was James's son-in-law. He took the throne and James ran away. And I quote, William's rise to the throne brought the Covenanter movement in Scotland full circle. The efforts of the Covenanters had contributed to the overflow of the English crown and had incited a half century of civil war, all from its focal point in Galloway. These five decades of, Eng of Anglo-Scottish tensions would reverberate for centuries, or at the very least, planted the seeds for further rebellion less than a century later. On top of that, there were the Jacobite rebellions. The Jacobites was a political movement with the aim of restoring the Stuart bloodline back to power. So if you remember, Charles I was part of the Stuart bloodline, and they were the ones that were anti-Presbyterian and believed that the king had divine right. So they had lost the power. So then William, William's horse stumbled in a molehole and he broke his collarbone. Pneumonia set in and he died. So he didn't have a direct successor. It went to Anne, Queen of Scotland, England, and Ireland, who was raised president, Protestant. So that would have made them happy because they obviously didn't like Catholics. They liked Protestant. When she died, there was a chance to see a Scottish king, finally, and James VII's son, James Francis Edward Stuart. But that never panned out. Bonnie Prince Charlie of the Stuart line eventually seized the capital of Scotland and then England. And important note, at this point, it's claimed that it's credibly affirmed many of the women hid their children at the Scottish army's approach under an impression they were cannibals. So there was a myth that the Scottish were inhuman consumers of other human beings spreading throughout England. Prince Charlie heard the English force lay in wait, so he didn't try to capture London, but he went back to Scotland. And I quote, What followed, dubbed the pacification, changed Scotland forever. The English dismantled the clan system, the highlands, hitherto a mysterious land where forces could take refuge were mapped. Scotland's identity was suppressed. So this is where the idea this could be possible propaganda against Scotland comes from. Because as you can see, there is all kinds of crazy shit happening between them with religion and politics. So then it ends with, at that point in history, it ended with Scotland basically being neutered. So you can see where maybe the English would try to negate them by coming up with this cannibalistic legend. Now, where does Sawney's name come from? Apparently, it was an English creation, which was short for Alexander, Alasdair, or Alistair, from the last two syllables. Although, it says, I quote, There's a belief that the name Sawney may have been a popular Scottish name from the southwest of Scotland, but the evidence is thin. It later became known as a slur defaming anyone of Scottish descent. So that's an important note, is that apparently it became... If you called someone a Sani, that would be not nice and not PC. So that's an, another indication or another argument towards the propaganda anti-Scottish idea that they 
that the Sonny Bean legend is not real. It's just made up propaganda. So I mentioned a second ago that when the Bonnie Prince Charlie came with his Scottish people to try to seize the capital of England, that women were hiding their children because they thought the Scottish were going to eat them. So there, so that's one case where people thought about cannibalism and then they weren't really like, they didn't dismiss it. So that's kind of an important detail that you don't dismiss someone, a group of people might be cannibals. Pardo in this book goes into then the history of cannibalism because he's really trying to figure out why did this legend, if it's not true, why did it stick so strongly with people throughout all this time? Now, cannibalism, there are cannibal legends in Central Europe, Mongolia, China, Bulgaria, and Russia. Cannibal tribes were discovered in the Pacific and Amazon in the 20th century, one tribe in the 1950s. It goes all the way back to Greek mythology. The British islands in 1903, human remains were found in the Go Cave known as Cheddar Gorge, not to be confused with the Cheddar Goblin. There was a man dubbed Cheddar Man, and it suggested that Cannibalism had taken place because they found these human remains and it looked like they had been chewed on and shit. There's evidence of prehistoric cannibalism, including making utensils. And I quote from paleontologist Dr. Sylvia Bello. If you look around the world, there are examples of skull cups in more recent times. In Tibetan culture, in Fiji, in Oceania, and in India. I mean, she's talking about skull cups. Apparently, Ed Gein, he was just following a long tradition of do-it-yourself cannibalism. You make your own utensils. He was just being practical. While it's probably unlikely that the early accounts of cannibalism directly form the basis of the tale of Sonny Bean, they do establish the practice of eating other humans is not entirely uncommon. And they were cases in Scotland. A 19th century historian says in 14th century, there were cannibals in the land and one couple lived on children. Another couple were documented as living off of humans caught in traps. Another case of a Scottishman named Tristacloak stole children and killed women and ate them. A documented case of a certain thief with his family lived apart from the company of men, remaining secret within a den in Angus called Feniston, who used to kill young persons and feed on their flesh, also in the 14th century. Someone else documented that same case. They were all caught and burned except for one girl, but then she was burned alive at the age nine. Another person tells of a Scottish brigand and family condemned to death for murder and cannibalism. One girl's excused, but at 12, got capital punishment for similar crimes. There's folklore about an Andrew Christie as well. There was a period of famine in Scotland around 1340. A butcher joined scavenger, some scavengers and robbers. One of them died, so they used the corpse as food, gained a taste for using human flesh, and started killing people and horses. You can see some documented cases, whether they're completely true or not, we don't know. But when you wonder why would people believe that cannibalism could be a thing, there is a precedent there where there's documented, you know, and it may be like kind of the weekly world news things of that time period, you know, who knows. But the point is, it was there, it was put in their minds, and it it was strong enough that it's stuck in people's brains. So when you hear the legend of Sonny Bean, it doesn't sound like completely outlandish, so maybe you would believe that it would be true. Now, as far as believing that there could be serial killers because that's that's what they were if they kept killing people that came to and they killed 800 fucking people or a thousand or thousands. Why would you believe that someone, a family would do this or that serial killing would be a thing? Because remember, serial killing was not established until in the 19, like mid 1900s. There wasn't a problem. I mean, really, until the 19, I would say like the 1950s or 60s even, because really the only ones that have been known to kill several people 
were Jack the Ripper and then later H.H. H. Holmes, but they didn't have the term serial killer, and it was still considered a very rare thing. It wasn't considered something that would be common. So another reason that Scottish or English people may have adopted this Sonny Bean legend as truth is because Burke and Hare. So Scotland's first real and fully documented serial killers were English immigrants. Oh, and I quote, Serial killing was not unheard of in Britain before the 19th century, but its news but its news had never been so rapidly and widely disseminated, and real-life examples had therefore received few and fair. In this sense, the Westport murders represented a turning point and can be accredited with the adding validity to the tale of the beans. So basically you're saying, yeah, there might have been a couple cases of people killing several people, but... Burke and Hare were the first really big, um, really well-known ones because they had more news and it was circulated faster and easier. That happened in the 1820s. There was a popular Edinburgh nursery rhyme and burking was added to the dictionary, the word burking. So it is to suffocate or smother for purposes of dissection. So Burke and Hare actually got added to the dictionary. So that's how how big the Burke and Hare thing was, which, again, when you have something as big as that, then it makes something that Sonny Bean might have done seem more realistic. Now, to get into the actual tale, he went line by line and checked to see if there's any historical accuracy within the story that the, the story that I the printed version that I had read to you. So James the first. There's no documentation in the National, Ar- National Archives of Scotland that James I went and took 400, blood, took 400 men to find a band of cannibals. James VI, he was one of the most documented rulers, and there's no mention of it. Pardo's argument is they documented like every fucking thing that James VI did, so why wouldn't they mention a thing that he went and caught a big band of killers? You would think that would be something huge that they would want to really capitalize on but it was not mentioned so why would they mention james the sixth pardo says the reason for mentioning him may may add credibility because of his love for witch hunting he was known as the famous witch hunter in the king james bible hey he did not like witches so if you have people cannibalizing and things like that then that's definitely not christian and definitely not you know that's probably the devil's work which would be witchcraft and they were the women were burned at the stake so you can kind of see why maybe they would attribute that to james the sixth if you put it into the time frame of Queen Elizabeth, because it was, I think, in pretty much all the versions they mentioned Queen Elizabeth, it would have been between 1567 to 1625. To further marry it, narrow it down, if it was James I, it would have to be 1567 to 1603, but again, there's no evidence of that. There's no direct location mentioned of the cave, except in just a basic, a very basic way, until there was a play written where they say it's on the seashore of Benenbrock over against the hill of Benerard. Now, there are two possible caves, the Banan Cave, but it's accessible at all times and not affected by the tide. There's Balkruchen Port, not accessible during the tide, hard to see the entrance, but no vast room, rooms and lofty chambers. Some people think the real cave was destroyed, so there's no absolute proof of what cave it is. There's not really, in that area, there isn't really anything that would be a definitive, this is definitely here, so that means that this tale is true. As for if there is a real Alexander Bean, Pardo searched the beans. He also searched B-A-N-E, B-E-A-N, and B-E-A-N-E, 
So B-E-A-N is the traditional Scottish, and adding an E is the English. He searched B-E-E-N, M-A-C, B-E-A-N, McBean, and B-E-I-N. When he searched between 1567 to 1603, which, what we, which is what we said you'd narrow it down if during Queen Elizabeth and James's reign, the documentation was scarce as literacy was limited and there were no formal records. The only records of beans were in church records. And since his parents were hardworking because they were hedgers and ditchers, so they were obviously hardworking and they mentioned he was idle. So they probably would have been included in the church reg- records because they would have gone to church. But there are records missing from that period. So that's helpful. And there were, they did find some Alexander Beans, but nothing matched the storyline. Also, when you talk about the Hedger and Ditcher, um, apparently those were not occupations during that time period. Some say that Sonny's wife was Agnes Randolph, known as Black Agnes, but that was the wrong time period, and there's no real traceable association. He raises a question, if they lived off the robberies, wouldn't they have to go into town to sell their loot? Or why would they rob the victims? Because most versions seem to have robbery as the main reason. But then it also makes a point to say they never left their caves. There's the claim that the whole country was almost depopulated. There would have been about 40,000 to 50,000 people. And when you say the number like, oh, a thousand people were killed, well, that's not... If you have a thousand people killed and you have 40 to 50,000 people, that's not really almost being depopulated. So that's obviously a a big uh, overstatement. Uh, The records at Tallbooth didn't start until 1657, so there can't be any any verification there, unfortunately. So as you can see, those were, he went through a bunch of the things. He could not find any credible facts or things to support that this was a true story. That being said, if this was not a true story, it has all the notes of being a really intriguing fucking story. It's got cannibals. It's got very visceral and literal gut-wrenching moments. You know, if you've already established, well, serial killers could happen, cannibalism could happen, and it's in a time period when you can't easily disprove things, you can't easily prove things. So it's doesn't. It's not surprising that it would stick the way that it did. And the way that it's passed on is, so you had word of mouth, you have the printed editions. So as time passes, then there was a play in 1798. There's a novel in 1896 called The Gray Man, by Samuel Rutherford Crockett. Note, that's not to be confused with Albert Fish, who is known as the Gray Man. And there's actually a movie called The Gray Man about Albert Fish. So I always find it interesting when one serial killer has a nickname or something named after him that's like another serial killer. At any rate, so there's a play, there's a novel. There were more plays. 1823, there's a play. There was a pantomime in 1839. There were some more plays in 1964, 1970. There's a book called The Flesh Eaters in 1979. There's some novels, and and you start seeing more novels and even true crime novels and and that treat it like it's true. And they even cite, I had mentioned Nicholson was one of the chat books. So they cited him directly in this, um, The Encyclopedia of Murder by Colin Wilson and Patricia Pittman. They, so they cite Nicholson, putting it between 1360 and 1430, with the fair people being six people instead of 30 people. There is a comic issue. He claims that he sees Sonny Bean in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and I don't know that I completely see that. Um, I mean, other than there's a family that might be a family that wind up being cannibals, but I don't know that that's necessarily a Sonny Bean reference from anything that I've read about it. It's mostly Ed Gein that's mentioned. So I don't know about that. But we do know the Hills Have Eyes. Craven himself said that he based it on them. There are some other movies that that he says 
have basis in Sonny Bean, at, at least at some level, like the 1973 Wicker Man, Evil Breed, The Legend of Sawin 2003, Hillside Cannibals in 2006, Craven's prequel The Hells Have Eyes, The Beginning in 2006, Sacrificed in 2008, and Sonny Flesh of Man in 2013. There was also a some rock bands. There was a rock band called Sonny Bean from America. There was a punk rock band. The Real Mackenzies had the song Sonny Bean Clan. And Snake Fingers' 1987 album had Ballad of Sonny Bean. In the London Dungeon Wax Museum, there is a figure of Sonny Bean, which that makes it seem like it has a historical precedence. And the 1973 Guinness Book has him as one of history's most prolific serial killers. So you can see... It has not lost any kind of traction, really, because um, you can see, like, the movies go even up to 2013. It's still going strong, at least being influenced, influencing other things. I will uh, sum up the author's main point, my main reference here. So Pardo says, The Bean story has evolved from word of mouth to chapbooks, to regional anthropology, to literature, the stage and film, and to local business opportunity. It is impossible for us to determine beyond a doubt whether Sonny Bean's original authors had anti-Scottish propaganda in mind, but popularization and regional and national appropriation of the tale have rendered such qualms obsolete. The legend has transcended its political provenance. In the end, does it even matter if Sonny and his family truly existed? The evidence is paper thin, but few of us would go for a nighttime stroll in search of the cave at Benane Head, let alone enter it. Why? Because we know with every fiber of our being that Sonny is a myth, few of us would be willing to put our reason to the test. So his argument is it doesn't matter whether it was true or not. It still scares the shit out of us. There's still a part of us that maybe superstitiously believes in it. And he gives an example of um, like the Slender Man is that Slender Man we know was a made up thing. But then two girls killed another girl saying they did it for Slender Man and... And his final thought is, in a world where such fantasies can flourish, can any of us truly ignore the legend of Sonny and his family? So there you go. There are different ways you can put it. So his official stance is, it don't matter if it's true or not, (laughs) because there's a part of us that clings to it, whether it's true or not. As far as cross-referencing, a couple of my other resources. Serial Killers, The Insatiable Passion by David Lester. He cites it as a historical fact. And he has references um, of Hickey in 1991 and Kerman in 1962. And the serial killer files, Harold Schechter, cites it as a historical fact from historian Mike, Michael Anglo. I keep wanting to say Michelangelo. Historian Michael Anglo. There was a legendary killer clan headed by a 5th century outlaw, Sonny Bean, born during the reign of James IV of Scotland, who fled along the Galloway coast. There was incest. Four dozen family members, they robbed and ate their victims, salt and pickled meat. Travelers found several members of the monstrous family feasting on the flesh of a freshly killed husband and wife who had been ambushed on the way home from a fair. And he follows the same tales as in the Sani book reference. It's intriguing to me that it is stated as fact, and that, but that out of all those things that Pardo mentioned, none of the things had mentioned that they found the, the family f- fleshing... Feasting on the flesh of a freshly killed husband and wife who had been ambushed on the way home from a fair. So again, you see, there's a detail where there was a husband and wife coming home from a fair, but it's been twisted into now they're both of the husband and wife were in the cave and they were caught being eaten. 
So all these, oh, and then James IV of Scotland? I don't know. I don't know where that came from. Then in Human Predator by Catherine Ramsland, she tells basically the same story, but, and I quote, or so the story goes, many historians today dispute it as a myth, citing sparse documentation from those days and the manner in which bloodthirsty legends are generally exaggerated. It's a good story, to be sure, but could it possibly be true? In a way, the answer doesn't matter because we do have true accounts of people who killed hundreds, murdered for gain, or consumed the flesh of their victims. So apparently Ramsland agrees with Pardo that it really doesn't matter whether it's true or not because there are true accounts of something of similar things. In Cannibal Killers by Moira Martingale, she cites the chronicler John Nicholson, tells the same story as basically everything else, and I quote, There are those, like writer Ronald Holmes, who believe that Sonny Bean did not really exist, but that he was merely the stuff of myth, a demonic boogeyman figure, like the vampire the werewolf, a primeval presence from the dark past of the human mind. But in addition to countering that tale has been very well documented in its claim to be factual, it must be noted that unlike these mythological night monsters, there were no elements of magical or even devilish dimensions to Sonny Bean. There is a danger, too, in falsely believing that because a person's crimes are so unspeakably shocking as to defy the laws of humanity, they could not possibly have taken place in reality. So it seems as though that argument is, is it's easy to write it off as him being demonic. And it, so it can't be true because people couldn't really cut off people's arms and legs and pickle them and eat them. So they're saying it's dangerous to think that it can't possibly be true because it's too hard to imagine that maybe it was true because, you know, maybe it is true because it's not like the deeds that were done were something that you would only hear of a werewolf doing you or something that you have to attribute to something magical. Like a person could actually physically do it. It's just we can't conceive of them being able to do it. So that's that argument is that don't just write it off thinking that it's something that couldn't happen. It could have happened. So they're not necessarily saying, yes, it did happen, but they're just like, I don't know. It could have. And then the last reference I'll mention is in Serial Killers, They Live to Kill by Rodney Castleton. He tells the story as if it is in historical fact. My take, at this point, Pardo is pretty fucking convincing. And he really seems like he dug into things. I mean, there were like several chapters on the history and just all of the details that he had. I mean, he actually printed out it just uh, the OCD listy lover in me was in love with him because every single chapbook story he like printed out in full. So he didn't just say, well, kind of like how I did the synopsis and well, this person, it was missing this. And then I moved on. He actually printed the whole thing out and then told you, see if you notice that. So he was very thorough. I tend to think that maybe Sonny Bean was not a real thing. But then again, I'm hesitant to say that it doesn't matter because there's a part of me that's like, ah, the actual truth does matter just because it is the truth. You know, like I don't want to be flippant and just be like, ah, truth doesn't matter, you know, just be. But I see the argument of we can't completely prove that it was or was not a thing. So not being able to prove it, what do we do with it? And I am intrigued by the idea that your gut reaction to it makes it true enough. Or, you know, we know that Burke inherited things. We know that Free Dahmer ate people. And so there's still a part of us that can see it. It kind of feels like it could be true, but I don't know. I, I guess ultimately 
it doesn't really affect things or change things too terribly much to know if it is absolutely true or not. I guess it depends on the individual and how they function. <laughs> but to me, I guess in my everyday life, whether that actually happened or not isn't really going to change things too much. So I will leave it as it's intriguing. It's fun, basically. It is fun to not be sure. Is just the idea that we're not sure if it's true or not, and that we do have some bases in history, and we have some that's not. So I am okay with leaving it open-ended. Like, I don't know. I don't know if it was true or not. I lean towards it probably wasn't. But it's still fun to talk about, and obviously it's good fodder for entertainment, and that's all I got on that. <laughs> I do kind of wonder, is like I've said before, is the first book that I read really does color how I look at the rest of what I read, which is a human thing. And I do try to remain open and not just automatically say, okay, well, the first book said it, so this is how it is, and I have to judge it based on everything. It's interesting to me if I would have not read that book first, if I would have read some of the other stuff that makes it sound like it is history, if that would have colored anything. But I really think that as in-depth as that dude was, I think no matter what I read or read before that, this really would have blown everything out of the water because of how, how many details he had and stuff. I will continue to read up on it, and as I said... I'll let you know if I find anything interesting, and I will mention them in other episodes that they pertain to. Like, I will do I will do a cannibalism episode and things like that. So, that was an adventure. The uh, next episode, I will talk about the movie Crazy Not Insane, about the Dr. Dorothy Otna-Lewis, where she delves into whether a um, serially violent person or basically how violence, does it come from your brain or does it come from something that happened to you? Does, is it genetic? So she kind of delves into what makes a violent person. And I actually happened to have one of her books. So I read it and, um, oh, Lord, help me. I found some of her other sources where they're very clinical and I'm trying to read through those just to see I haven't watched the movie yet so I'm reading the books before I watch the movie which you know you never know how that's going to go sometimes that's the best way to do things but then I'm going to compare what I see in the movie to the literature that is there so that will be the next episode and I'm going to try to have that out next week for you since uh, I was gone for a while so make sure you stay tuned for that and then there will be the Reigns and Rippers episode so we're going to take a little bit of a break in between the serial killers that had families that killed together. Make sure you stay tuned for everything. Keep an eye on Instagram, Facebook, and the murderlabmedia.com website for updates on merch and episodes. And I have uh, some Christmas presents and stuff I want to share with you that I have not gotten around to sharing yet. So keep your eye out because I'm going to start posting that stuff. Share it with your friends. Make sure they know about it. And you can share the love and horror and whatnot with them. You can find us on Google Play and iTunes and your favorite podcast app. For the RSS feed, go to murderlabmedia.com. This is Queen Victoria. Thank you for entering the lab.
Isn't it awfully nice to have a penis? Isn't it frightfully good to have a dong? It's swell to own a stiffy. It's divine to own a dick. From the tiniest little tadger to the world's biggest prick. So three chairs for your William or John Thomas. Hooray for your one-eyed trails a snake. Your piece of pork, your wife, best friends, your Percy or your cock. You can wrap it up in ribbons. You can slip it in your sock. But don't take it out in public or they will stick you in the dock and you won't come back.